Hi, welcome to the Inspired Painter Podcast. My name is Jessica Libor, and I am a Philadelphia-based artist, curator, and art professor, as well as artist coach. In this podcast, I cover topics vital to the success of emerging and established artists, like inspiration, mindset, art business relationships, and artist career strategy. You'll also hear interviews from art world luminaries who share their wisdom. My goal for this podcast is for you to feel encouraged, inspired, and in control of your art career, and to help you become the best artist that you can be. Hello, hello. I'm here with um, I'm here with Stephen and Elaine Bennett. So excited to talk to you both. How are you this morning? Fine, thank you. How about you? Doing, doing great, doing great. It's good to see you. Good to see you. And where are you guys? Um, where are you guys calling in from? We're calling in from San Antonio, Texas. Oh, very nice. Awesome. I, I love all the art. I can see the art behind you. Um, is this? Are the are these like antiques or um, are these contemporary art or what is what is all the little? Um... So a little bit of both. So what you can see on the. Uh... What you can see on the screen, the large painting behind us, I guess we can kind of show that. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. The large painting behind us is by Zenia Hausner. Zenia is probably uh, one of the greatest, the greatest living woman painter in Austria, although she maintains mm -hmm. a studio in both uh, Vienna and in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And then this painting behind Elaine's head, right there. Thank <laughs> you, doctor. Uh, is by Suzanne Balladon, mm -hmm. uh, who uh, just recently had a wonderful retrospective mm -hmm. at the Barnes in Philadelphia. It was a beautiful show. And uh, that's one of her seated nudes. Mm -hmm. And then this painting here is a relatively recent acquisition. That's by Sylvia Slay, mm -hmm. S-L-E-I-G-H. Sylvia Slay is now dead, but she was uh, perhaps the last of the, uh, of the women realists practicing in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. and, um, she is written about at length by the feminist art historian, Linda Nochlin, mm -hmm. uh, who wrote a number of essays about uh, art and art history. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's called uh, Portrait of Elaine Dufour. And Elaine is still, uh, is still here and going. And that mm -hmm. painting dates from the uh, 70s. Uh, this painting uh, on backwards here mm -hmm. the one by susan valadon uh the susan valadon painting is uh dated 1929 oh nice yeah i i wrote something about her actually susan valadon she was an interesting character as oh, an artist boy. i guess huh. yeah she had quite an interesting life and um i, I wrote this course for artists and uh, one of the uh i did like a section on her and she's she's very interesting so that's amazing thank you for sharing that and um, if you're listening on the podcast, you can just uh, you can just look those up, um, or find us on the YouTube. I'll uh, I'll put the link in there so you can see what they're talking about. But um, I'm so excited to talk to you guys because 
I thought this would be such a great fit for this podcast because I know so many of the listeners are contemporary realist artists who are female. Um, right now, 89% are female who listening who listen to this. So, um, and you guys are champions of that very specific niche. And I thought this would be such an amazing opportunity to talk to you about your passion for really helping and empowering and really giving that specific niche of artists such a platform that I so appreciate and it's so amazing. So, um, so yeah, so why don't you just introduce yourselves and then we can talk a little bit about the prize and your collection. Ladies first. Well, I'm Elaine Schmidt, also known as Elaine Bennett. <laughs> um, I, my wait, wait, did I, did I marry you? You did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Wait, can I ask how long have you guys been married? Seven and a half years. Oh wow! Okay, nice. All right, wonderful. So we actually started to collect before we were married. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, there's an interesting story behind that. But my first career was I was an elementary school principal Mm -hmm. and um, special ed teacher, second language teacher. And um, then I retired to marry Steve. And since then, we have been working on our collection and then the prize and a few other philanthropic projects that we are engaged in. That's right. Amazing. And I'm I'm, uh, Stephen Bennett. I... uh, I spent my career as a, a lawyer and a corporate executive, uh, but my bachelor's degree is in art history. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had spent time uh, as a student employee in the art gallery at the university. And one thing led to another. And when I uh, started to approach my golden years, I said, you know, I need to get more serious about art collecting. And Mm -hmm. so uh, some years ago, we started the Bennett Collection, which is a collection that is limited uh, or expansive maybe is the right word. It expands to include only the works of women by women. So every painting in the collection depicts a woman and every painting in the collection was authored by a woman. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that for some reason. That's, that's even more specific. I love it. <laughs> yes. Well, it, it makes it easy to decide what is in and what is out mm-hmm. in terms of uh, uh, what we collect. Yeah. And so uh, we've enjoyed being uh, busy people with uh, all the things that we do. Uh, we we collect art, we run the Bennett Prize, kind of, actually somebody else runs it, but we- We, we help. Uh, some would say we help and others would say we meddle. <laughs> <laughs> we meddle in the Bennett Prize. Uh, we sponsor a series of lectures for artists uh, called the Bennett Schmidt Lectures mm-hmm. on the Higher Aim of Art, which is, uh, sponsored through the studio in Caminati in Philadelphia, which you know about, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, among other things. Very cool, very cool. Thank you so much for that, yes. Um, very interesting. Uh, yeah, my dad is a lawyer. Um, and so I'm familiar with 
you know, some, some law practices. I will say it's very nice to have a lawyer in the family if you're an artist, um, just for like contracts and stuff like that. Um, it's, it's fantastic. So I, I, but I'm sure you're, you're familiar with all that. And that's very interesting that, um, that you had an interest in art from the beginning enough to get like your bachelor's degree in art history. Right. What was that like? Yes. I've always been interested. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, well, yeah. Steve hoped to be a curator at one point. Yeah, I, there's a long story there, but I, I can cut it short. And the, the short is I had a bachelor's degree in art history. I had worked as the student assistant in the art gallery at the college. And uh, I was I was convinced, <clears throat> pardon me, I was convinced I was headed into a career uh, as a museum director or a curator, as the case mm -hmm. might be. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I was rejected, bitterly rejected. I was rejected. I had applied to the Courtauld Institute at the University of London as mm -hmm. a graduate student in art history. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought I was a shoe in, but evidently, <laughs> <laughs> evidently they didn't think so. And mm -hmm. Uh, when I got rejected, I was so damn mad. I uh, I huffed off to law school and said, "The heck with it." And uh, <laughs> that's that's the story. But the good news is, is now he has the money to buy the art. Right, right. So there's like a reason behind everything. Everything happens for a reason, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's that's really that's really interesting. Um, so when I graduated from uh, PAFA. I was um, I, I was working as a makeup artist, um, and and then I transitioned to an event planner uh, for Lord and Taylor, and so I worked as like a makeup artist and then an event planner for like ten years total, and I was always like frustrated, like oh I need to be like giving more of myself to my art, but really like now that I am a full time artist, it's it's amazing how much those skills helped me now like um you know creating open studio events you know curating exhibitions like i know all those organizational skills from my time in doing something corporate you know and um so yeah i, sure. I think that's great. I, you know everything kind of everything lives in kind of a spiral that um crosses over itself again and again it isn't all linear it's and even time's not linear, so. Mm, that's a that's a that's a topic for another podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great though. So so you guys live in Texas, and is your collection in Texas as well? Yes, we. This is our primary residence in San Antonio, mm -hmm. and then we have a condo in Chicago. Okay. And so our art is split between Chicago and here, and then we have an art storage unit because mm -hmm. about five years ago, we outgrew our house. Mm -hmm. And um, so and then we loan pieces, of course, as well. And mm -hmm. we've got pieces scattered all over the globe right now that have been loaned to uh, uh, museums and the like, you know. This episode is sponsored by the Luminary Artist Academy. The Luminary Artist Academy is a six month self-paced transformational course for contemporary realist feminine artists to blossom into the higher level of professional success from the inside out. The Luminary Artist Academy was written for you. As an artist myself who has been through the dark night of my own soul, 
and through the thickets of my own limiting beliefs, in order to come out on the other side, I feel the struggle and I know where you are. I know the desires that you feel and the frustration at feeling like they are out of reach, and I have discovered the keys to unlocking your own potential and totally transforming the reality of your creative practice and your experience as an artist in a very short time after doing it myself. And I wrote the Luminary Artists Academy to share this process with you. So the Luminary Artists Academy is a comprehensive, detailed, step-by-step course that takes you on an odyssey through the inner chambers of your heart and soul to your creative practice and out into the world where you shine your confident feminine light as a luminary in your field. This course supports you every single step of the way to guide you into stepping into your highest version of yourself within your artistic career and your life. Don't let another year go by just thinking about it and without taking action. Being in limbo, saying next time or I'll do it later, is the reason why you feel like you're spinning your wheels and staying stuck. By doing the same things in the same way, you'll likely be in the same place you are now, six months from now, if you don't take action. Take the first steps today to believe in a different future for yourself. The gallery shows, press celebrating your work, and sales pouring in from your art is what you know you are meant for and what you ultimately deserve. Your most aligned artistic career is waiting for you. It's time to believe in yourself and value your dreams. I believe in you. Explore the course via the link in the show notes or at www.thevisionaryartistsalon.com. We have an Artemisia painting that's currently on display at uh, the Rix Museum, uh, one of the Rix Museums in the Netherlands. Wow, congratulations, that's amazing. And uh, we uh, loaned, we didn't loan this one, but we loaned a couple of other paintings to the large uh, Xenia Hausner uh, retrospective that was held at the Albertina. Mm-hmm. a year ago. And then we have a, a fantasy painting by Julie Bell that's traveling the country in an exhibition, traveling exhibition under the auspices of the Edward Hopper. Uh, oh, wow. Edward Hopper uh, house as well. So our paintings travel more than we do. These <laughs> yeah, well, they can't catch COVID, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. COVID. Oh, that's funny. Um, that's so amazing that they're they're traveling all over. And you know, art is meant to be seen, right? Not just in a storage unit. You want it to be seen. So, um, so that's great that it's traveling all over the place. Yeah. Now, I when I was looking up uh, the Bennett collection, I was like, man, I would like love to like go like and see all of these. Is have you guys ever thought about like opening something um, where people can see your whole collection? Right. Um, yeah, we've, we've thought about a private museum and since this is our home. Oh, right, yeah. Currently hung, we have decided against it, but before COVID, we've had major events where we've opened up our whole home and mm-hmm. okay. certain yeah. invited guests came through mm-hmm. and we, you know, if you wrote us and said, I'm going to be in San Antonio, I'd like to come to your house and see your art, we would be happy to do that. Okay, so yeah. Um, yeah, so maybe maybe someday in the future, um, maybe someday in the future, the Bennett Museum 
<laughs> and it's more, we've talked about if there was a museum that wanted to borrow 20 for mm -hmm. an exhibition that we would be happy to consider that. Right. Yeah, we're, we're pretty open about loaning the work. Um, yes. You know, many collectors um, are uptight because they're afraid the work gets damaged. Yeah. Um, and once you get beyond that, you're always worried that uh, something goes wrong. But we've taken the view that owning the art is kind of a is kind of a trust, right? I mean, we've been blessed with the ability uh, to have the art, and so hoarding it uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. So we've been very open about. Considering uh, considering uh, loans of the art for exhibitions and so forth, and mm -hmm. so yeah. we we're we're anxious for people to see it. Mm -hmm. we want yeah. people to see it, and we anticipate when we go to the big art gallery in the sky that the collection will go into the possession of a uh, into the possession of a museum or a public. Uh, public institution or institutions. That's our intention. Yes, that's amazing. So, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit later is just like building your legacy as an artist. Um, obviously, you're building your legacy as an art collector, but um, I'm sure a lot of artists, most artists would love to end up in such like a specific and valued collection with people who really are taking care of their art. That's always the dream, right? And the, um, the fear is like, somebody buys something and maybe they pass away, their children maybe don't know the value of it and they give it to like um, a thrift store or something. <laughs> and so that's like, I I've talked to many artists about like just fearing where it ends up, you know? So, um, so we're gonna talk about building your legacy and in, in like a valuable way in a little bit. Um, but before we get there, I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm interested, for you, Elaine, how did you get interested in collecting art? Well, you know, I came, it's interesting. I came from a middle-class background and my mother um, was a teacher mm -hmm. before she had her children. And so part of growing up was going to art museums. And then I did the requisite art appreciation high school course. And then I've lived overseas twice. And so it, that involved a lot of, you know, architecture, art galleries. And so that was actually one of the things, it was a compatibility Steve and I had. Uh, we both liked art. And yeah. even, we, I'll, I'll tell your, your listeners, uh, we met through eHarmony. And we wrote oh, for amazing. like 14 weeks before we had our first date being. Oh, wow. Were you from? Can I ask, were you living in different well, like, I was states? I living in Plano, Texas, which is 300 miles from here. Uh, and Steve was in San Antonio, except part of our correspondence, we both like to read, we both like music, and we both like art. We would spend a lot of, before we met, talking about art. And one of the people we talked about was Hopper. And we actually had our wedding reception in Chicago at the Art Institute of Chicago. And we had our picture taken by the very hopper we had talked about. In our oh, that's special. It was special. Yeah, it really was. It, it, was, it was special. Was nice. So, um, yeah. you know, I think it's it's like art. I like, part for me, I'm a relational person and we've met a lot of artists mm -hmm. um, through collecting and through the prize. And I like that. 
it's, you know, people are interesting and mm-hmm. I am not creative. So I really respect people who are. You and, sell yourself short. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> you sell yourself short. Yeah, but I, the most creative woman I know. Oh, stop. But, I feel like if you like art, then you, there's an element to you that's, we, we all have creativity within us. It's true. It's, it's got to be there somewhere. <laughs> and I like the narrative in art, which is part of the reason we jointly decided to collect figurative realism because we both like the narrative or the concept behind it. Um, we, we like all kinds of art and fabric and glass, etc. But the real joy of figurative realism is the story or the concept, mm-hmm. both what the artist is trying to tell as well as what we as viewers receive and unpack from it. And that makes it intellectually more stimulating and co- cognitively more complex than just looking at blobs of color. And mm-hmm. you say, yeah, that's a pretty pattern. Yeah, yeah. And I think that also, like, I love to marvel at the skill that it takes to um, and like think about the skill, the the, uh, the craftsmanship also for uh, realism is always a source of wonder for me and appreciation because I think of the hours that went into it and like the love that went into it. And that's like another reason for me to like really love it, so. It's true. And sometimes yeah. I listen to podcasts and, you know, artists can talk about white for two hours, you know, yeah. <laughs> or black. Okay. And as someone who's not an artist, I listen, I don't, um, you know, just because yeah. it's fascinating that it's, there's True. such a science behind it. Yeah. Such now, I'm, I'm interested, um, do you have, as you're collecting things, besides like female artists who are painting females, what do you see any other patterns in your art collection that kind of like surprise you? Oh, the fault lines are many. <laughs> Big, small, new, old. Uh, you know, we have some that's very hard realism and some that's impressionistic or nearly abstract. Um, and we, you know, we have called it the collection, uh, the Bennett collection of figurative uh, realists, but uh, of women figurative realists, but in truth, both real and figurative is a very, those are very broad ideas. And so we have a very broad range of acceptable work for figurative realism. If it looks like a human figure, that's probably real enough, mm-hmm. real enough for but, us. And we also, we started with exclusively contemporary women, and then we added historical women because we mm-hmm. thought it would help the reputations of the contemporary women mm-hmm. if our collection was grounded in the past with some names that everybody knows. Right. So that was one thing we did. And then another thing, sometimes like we have, a painting of a pregnant woman, we have a painting of a homeless woman, we have a painting of a special needs person. So we try, our subjects are, are very diverse. And that's intentional because being a woman, you you are all those things, you know, we yeah. have a woman working and, you know, it's um, yeah. you know, celebrating. We don't have, I have to say, we don't have too many happy women. 
<laughs> oh no. <laughs> no and, and, and I asked an artist and she said, because it's hard to paint a smile, but I'm thinking, wait, could you see? They're con contemplative or pleased, but you don't have too many people smiling. Well, you, do, you know, laugh out loud paintings are few and far, <laughs> they are. Few and far between. The one I like to think of, I've forgotten the title of it, Leah Chapin. Uh, oh yes, her work is very happy. We do. Yeah, well, she did this great, great painting. I, I've always admired this painting of this nude middle-aged woman seated on a rock and she's howling with laughter. She's going, Whoa! and uh, it's, a, it's a great painting. And I'm sure she's howling at the, the uh, laughing at the improbability of her seated on a rock nude. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it's yeah. a very happy painting, but generally speaking, you know, art doesn't spring often from uh, mirth. It springs from something that is more serious and mm -hmm. um, uh, oftentimes more contemplative, if not sorrowful. So you you tend to see a lot of paintings that are thoughtful and introspective more mm -hmm. so, I think. Yeah, and I think that that is specifically true for the realist world because it does seem to have a bit of a serious overtone to it, um, you know, because maybe that comes from its historical past, like people who, you know, were studying like in the style of the Florence Academy of Art before the Florence Academy of Art existed, like back in like the 15, 1600s, like right. people didn't paint people who were smiling then because they were painting from life and it would be impossible to just hold a smile for hours, right? So now, now that we have this, um, this legacy and we're still painting in realism, maybe that it's a throwback to that, I don't know. Well, you know, realism kind of came into its own after the cave paintings, realism focused mainly on religious themes. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the history, the history of Western art at any rate is the, is the history of religion also. And mm -hmm. if you think about whether it's the Hebrew Bible or the Christian New Testament, um, those are pretty serious. You, you don't have a bunch of incidents recounted in either of those scriptures mm -hmm. where people are yucking it up. Yeah. I mean, it's it's always pretty serious business. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And so what was the foundation, the, the, uh, the Renaissance, the even the Middle Age and before, you know, back, going back to the earliest of religious depictions in the Romanesque, uh, they tend to be pretty serious, pretty, mm -hmm. pretty serious religious themes. So I think there's a historical reason for why we don't see more. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. More mirth, more mirth in paintings. Now Maybe I have a question. Get somebody to paint you with a laugh. I want to see you howling with laughter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, I'm curious if you guys have, if um, each one of you can think of like maybe one or two of some of your favorite historical paintings. Whether we own them or not. Whether you own them or not. Yep. Oh, gosh. I, you know. Well, I'll start with one. I love the uh, La Primavera um, by Botticelli. I think that's. Oh, a uh, yes. The, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, 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 could, I could handle that. Yeah. 
I <laughs> Children on the Beach by Mary Cassatt. That's oh, one yes. Of my favorites because I like children, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I look at some of the work. I've just got the catalog back here. The Detroit Institute of Art has got this wonderful women, uh, women artist show featuring a lot of Artemisia Gentileschi. Mm -hmm. And you look at some of the work that Artemisia did. I mean, it's just, uh, it's pick any one of them, really. She was just kind of a consummate artist and really the first woman to be successful in her, under her own name, mm -hmm. as opposed to the name of a father or a brother, mm -hmm. you know, ghost painting with the father mm -hmm. or the brother signing the work. I, you know, pick any one of those and I, I could be very happy. Mm -hmm. um, if you're talking all, all, all painters over all of history, there's a couple of uh, Hopper paintings that I'm very fond of, you know, it's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether it's Chop Suey or New York Restaurant. Or yeah, yeah, those are classics. And he has, he has a way of making the most mundane things incredibly fascinating. And I think it's because of like the light that he does. And then also like, the there's a way that it looks like a film set, like every single thing. Well, I don't know. He, he has this unique way of glazing his paintings so that they glow from within almost mm -hmm. everything mm -hmm. kind of, it glows. And he has a, another unique thing. And that is he captures a moment in time mm -hmm. and you kind of feel the, with his work, you feel the shutter clicking, you know, you feel like yeah. you just stepped into it and wham, yeah. this thing has come, come to be. Uh, and it's interesting, he was, he was known during his lifetime as a fairly, a, a very silent man who was fairly humorless. He, he, hmm was not given to talk very much and he wasn't a particularly uh, mirthful person apparently according to my understanding so he's he's one of these people who all of his soul went into his work and maybe that's yeah. so good yeah maybe that is there is like a charge to them I, I like to say there's like a charge to his paintings where you you pick them up and there's something like electric about them and, um, but I, I think that's interesting that you say that he was like very kind of like quiet and somber because I think a lot of his paintings depict like a sense of loneliness and not like in a sad way, more of like a uh, just matter of fact Existential, way. kind of existential idea that we're all alone in mm -hmm. this life. And he, you know, he captures that a lot. He, uh, he tended to like to depict this, uh, solitary women and he, mm -hmm. did that. he did that a lot mm -hmm. uh, occasionally he would depict couples you know there's a I think one of the one of my favorites isn't necessarily it isn't Nighthawks but he he's depicted a a woman in an overcoat standing off to the side in the subdued light of a movie theater. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I can picture it. Yeah. And she's all alone. And you, you wonder, is she waiting for her date to come so they can be seated? He's parking the car kind of thing. Or uh, 
why is she there alone? And there is there is that sense of she's kind of standing there in this darkened movie theater. And I thought he captured it. You know, we don't have movie palaces like that anymore, but he kind of captured it perfectly. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Really interesting stuff for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's great. So um, I just want to move on and ask you, what made you decide to collect female contemporary realist artists in particular? I will give the credit to Steve. Uh, we had this condo in Chicago and there was nothing on the walls. Mm -hmm. And so at first we thought he, Steve, made his money to go to law school by being a professional photographer. So he's got some beautiful shots and we thought about it, enlarging them and sticking them on the wall. And then we thought check stamps because they're beautiful. And so we were thinking, uh, we were brainstorming, right? Thinking divergently about possible options. And then um, Steve figured out that, you know, women, at the time were underrepresented in galleries. Their works cost less. They were equally as good as men, sometimes mm -hmm. better depending upon who you were comparing. And um, that's why we, we decided we liked it. Mm -hmm. We could help mm -hmm. the, the cause of equity and we could get more honestly for our money. Now mm -hmm. that's changing, which is good. Because mm -hmm. um, this was 10 years ago. So things have really changed for uh, women artists since then, which is mm -hmm. wonderful. It, it was our goal and objective, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but he still gets frustrated. He'll go to auctions days and what 10 years ago nobody else was bidding on. Now there are a lot of people bidding for the mm -hmm. same pieces because they want dead historic women, right? I don't think it's true yet for living not the contemporaries artists as much but that's mm -hmm. how we decided and we got started and we were very pleased with our acquisitions yeah we're still pleased with our acquisitions i think it's fair to say that when we started collecting and it was actually you know a dozen years ago or so and when we started collecting we had the place to ourselves it was sort of like we're in the department store and everything is <laughs> everything's for sale and you can pick anything you want mm -hmm. and um as time has gone on frankly the uh, the communities harped at the institutional uh inst institutional art institutions museums uh public galleries and uh, they suddenly realized they were way behind the curve. They, mm -hmm. had, they hadn't paid any attention to it. Uh, they had minimized the contributions of women. They had nothing in their collections. And so mm -hmm. suddenly now they've all uh, rushed into the market buying anything that's not nailed down. Mm -hmm. And a whole group, big arts full of these speculators and dealers and others who are buying up things in the hope that they can sell it for five times what they paid for it. So mm -hmm. practically every historical painting now has a premium associated with it mm -hmm. that it did not have uh, in the past. 
And that's that's quite frankly true whether the art's any good or not. And yeah, every everything's gone up if a woman is the author. Hmm. Um, so and from our point of view, that's not bad because part of the uh, raison d'etre for the collection was that we would enable women to get more recognition and mm -hmm. enable women to be recognized as capable figurists and capable realistic painters and uh, uh, skillful uh, and equally competent uh, uh, artists in their own right. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're grateful, we're grateful that things are as they are. But, you know, I guess the highest compliment an artist can pay us is if we start to collect their work and then they get so successful, we can't afford it anymore. <laughs> uh, that's the highest compliment yeah. we can be paid. And we've had a few that have taken off like rockets like that. And that's amazing. That's yeah. that's that must be so exciting to watch, too. It is exciting to watch. Yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, it's You're so pleased. We're so pleased for them, right? Here. Right. It's, yeah, it's definitely. Oh, that's so great. So what do you see? Um, so you're talking about like, that's so amazing that the historical artists have been able to really, um, you know, raise their prices and their um, their openness with museums and are being shown more and being uh, auctioned more competitively. But what challenges do you see in particular for female artists today? Oh, it's still a tough, it's still a tough grind. You know, if you think about what being an artist is, you spend all day in front of a flat two-dimensional surface and you're pouring your creativity and your soul into this and you're alone a lot of the time and you're waiting for somebody to recognize what you're doing as valuable and valid. And there's all these intermediaries that are uh, filtering whether or not you can make it successfully. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it's, it's tough to be a, any kind of artist of any gender, uh, but I think the women have it harder. They, they bear the children, they, uh, they, rule the home, you know, they, the traditional roles. And beyond that, um, it is still pretty much, despite all the hoopla about women artists and so forth, I think that the, I think that it's still tilted a little bit uh, against, against the women painters, you know? Yeah, if you look at the numbers, it's definitely still a boys club, like in the, especially the higher, um, the more successful that you are, I feel like the numbers of women artists actually go down. I don't feel like it; they actually do. <laughs> so, because I've I've looked at it, and I've um, I've I've definitely looked at it. But I don't know. Like for me, I've just decided that's not going to be my story. My story is not going to be that, and I'm just not I'm not going to let that define me or stop me. And I'm just going to keep believing in myself. You know, that's all you can do. Well, I you know I think. Uh, believing in yourself, having a community that I think it's really important. And women are better at this than men. The men tend to, the men tend to be solitary. I think the women tend to uh, have a better 
a better sense of community and sisterhood than the men do. There's no, there's no brotherhood of male artists for the most part. There is, there is, however, I think a sisterhood among many women painters who root for each other and and hope hope the best for one another and share share trade secrets about their work. I'm not sure that's as true for the men. Well, the impressionist men certainly certainly did. They hey, were. Outside. I have another. The pre-Braphelite bro Brotherhood. Uh, fair enough. They, you know, <laughs> but keep in mind those those painters. It's always better to have an enemy out there. You know, the salon was the enemy <laughs> for the impressionists. The salon was the enemy, so they band together and they hold their own their own That's salon true. and. I think that that helps community having a perceived oppressor and it, may, it isn't just perceived for the women and for the impressionists and for the pre-Raphaelites, it was a real oppressor. So there was strength in numbers and uh, a community that yeah. uh, I think, and I think it's important for women artists to band together as much as they can and help each other because it's lonely out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have a group of artists, uh, friends. There's like uh, six of us in this little um, group and we, we message each other every day, like every day. We, we just talk about our, um, you know, what we're working on, like what we're, uh, you know, our projects, like questions about painting, like it's just like a little community group. Right. And these are people that I went to school with. Um, and we're all like making our way in very different ways, but you know, just having that sense of like somebody to talk to about like your career challenges is like so meaningful. Yeah. Oh, I agree with that, sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's see here. Um, so with the Bennett Prize, when did you guys start the Bennett Prize and what was the idea behind that? 20, 20. 15, 16, we started, uh, we, we started talking about it uh, a number of years ago, and it was the Saturday morning conversation, right? You, you get up, you have a cup of coffee, mm -hmm. you're not going to work, and you <laughs> look at each other and you say, I want to, I want to talk about this. I think we ought to, we ought to give some thought to this. And so the Saturday morning discussions led to a decision to not just collect, you know, you could, you could justify spending your money just buying women artists and you could soothe your head by saying, you know, that's good enough. I, that's all I can do. I, we collect their work. That's good enough. But I think we, we wanted to go farther. Mm -hmm. In part because as we got to know the artists and talk to them and hear their stories, I mean, everybody has struggles to make it as a full-time artist. And maybe it was because we were primarily talking to women, but it seemed like, yeah. um, you know, between childcare and this was even before COVID and, you know, the fact that women's work doesn't tend to command the prices of men, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. We thought it was another way that we could maybe um, help. And so we talked to some artists and then we talked to some museum people and some gallerists 
and got thrown out of a lot of places. But but we got lots really? of ideas. We got lots yeah, of ideas. Yeah, people thought we were crazy. We a, well, we've come a long way. Well, at, when you're starting out, mm -hmm. I, I generally speaking, the reception for in in big art in institutional terms, museums and this sort of thing. And, and consider it from their point of view. You've got these, these people, you don't know who they are. They show up on the doorstep and they say, we've got this idea to do this. Mm -hmm. Well, this is before the craze for women, right? This is before the current wave of, mm -hmm. of popularity. And they're all kind of shaking their heads saying, you know, we got a lot of pats on the head. Well, good luck to you folks. Uh, mm -hmm. See you around, you know you know hope it works out for you and i bet that now they're they would like love to work with you i think more so than in the past yeah i, I don't want to overstate it i think the bennett prize uh is still a little bit of an outsider's game rather than an insider's game and maybe that's okay maybe mm -hmm. maybe that's all right you know uh but uh, having said all that, we we have achieved or are starting to see results. The third iteration of the prize is now about to kick off. This will be the third. It's a biennial competition every two years. And so we held a competition that started it. The call for entries opened in 2018. Mm -hmm. uh, it was awarded in 2019, then we had the 2021 award, and now we're about to open the call for entries for the uh, 2023 iteration, mm -hmm. which will be awarded in the spring of 2023. Um, and we're starting to see all of the results that we had hoped for. Women, uh, lots of contestants, Mm -hmm. uh, very capable artists mm -hmm. and the finalists and the people who have gained recognition from the prize have they've gotten higher prices they've gotten museum shows they've gotten into better collections they've mm -hmm. they, they've traveled the country and had uh, significantly more exposure that i think has helped some and with each successive iteration, the uh, success of the artists who are recognized is greater and greater because mm -hmm. because the prize itself is is getting traction now. Right, right. So, yeah. what happens is just for your listeners, the call yeah. tree is about six months long. It opens April eighteenth and closes in October. And if they're interested, you can't have sold a painting for more than $25,000. Uh, the work you do, in spite of the fact we only collect paintings of women, they can paint what men or women, whatever figures. they want, figures. Mm -hmm. A figure has to be in the painting, um, but it doesn't have to be a traditional figure. If it can be identified as a human figure, then it, it works. Mm -hmm. And then there are four jurors, uh, two professional artists. Uh, this time it's Zoe Frank and Julie Bell, Steve, and then Joe Rosa, who's the director of the Fry Museum in Seattle. Mm -hmm. um, they, they go through all the entries and they will um, choose 10 finalists. And then the finalists will ship 
three or four paintings to Muskegon, Michigan, where we have our partner museum, the Muskegon um, Museum of Art. And the jurors fly in and actually judge in person because, oh. as you know, seeing something online is very different than seeing yeah. in person because size, you know, it, all those different things, color, size, different. Texture, yeah. Yeah, and then in May, um, all 10 finalists, we pay for them to come to Muskegon with one per, one family member. And um, the, the winner is announced and she gets $50,000 over a two year period. Ooh, that's um, amazing. It's cool. And then, yeah. that, and then she paints a solo show Mm -hmm. Two years later, we'll go on a traveling exhibition. Mm -hmm. And then this time, um, the jurors felt that it's been so hard just to choose one person that they wanted some kind of prize for the, the second place person. And so the, this time we're giving just a $10,000 award to the semi-finalist, uh, I guess. Uh, we're calling it the first runner-up. First runner-up. Mm -hmm. but, but the other thing I have to say, we spend money in very intentionally. We have a PR firm. We promote all 10 finalists for two years. Mm -hmm. So the PR firm, there's print, there's a lot of advertisements in print. There's a pretty good um, online presence. They make Animoto. So we try to promote all 10, all 10 mm -hmm. of the finalists very actively. Um, not just the ones who get the money. <laughs> well, well said. Um, the BennettPrize.org is where all the details are. There's actually a little radio button, complete rules for entry. You just punch that and it'll tell you everything. The only real restrictions, there, there's no age restriction, anybody of any age. The only thing we ask is that uh, students uh, uh, are, uh, uh, not permitted to apply only because they're distracted by their studies and mm -hmm. we're looking for people who want to be full-time professional artists mm -hmm. so can't be a student and uh, we ask that you live in the united states you don't have to be a citizen but we ask that you live in the united states most of the time when you're working because if you win the prize we don't want to have to deal with the problems of getting the paintings oh, awesome oh my goodness yes Right. And that's, that's a nightmare. That's the only thing that stopped us. We'd be more than happy to do an international prize. But mm -hmm. once you say, oh, well, all my work is in fill in the blank place, uh, you create a significant level of additional level of logistic complications. Yeah. So yeah. we've asked people to live in the US so that the work is produced here if they win. Right. That makes sense. Wow, that's great. And um, I'm going to put a link directly to that in the show notes for those of you who are listening. So if you are a uh, someone who fits all those criteria, your work fits that criteria, then I definitely invite you to click that link and apply this year. Um, again, it's biennial, so don't lose the chance to enter this year. That'd be great. Thank you. That'd be great. We're, we're anxious. You know, we've had now two completed cycles and we've had about 700 700 contestants each mm -hmm. time wow and, that's amazing 
and it's a changing 700, but we'd be delighted to judge 7,000 entries if, if mm -hmm. we could encourage people to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's always interesting. We do a, uh, uh, we ask every contestant to complete a survey after the prize is, is awarded. We send out a survey and we ask people what they think. And it's always interesting because uh, I think uh, each jury has a different view about, about, you know, what we say is we're interested in propelling figurist, realist, figurative realist painting by women. Mm -hmm. And um, we're not too hard over about the real part of it. And we're uh, pretty easy going about figurative, but it's got to be a, the figure has to be a principal uh, focus of the work. And we did photorealism. And well, we, you know, we've had photorealism and then we've had very conceptual work that mm -hmm. really isn't anything, very impressionistic realism. I don't know that we've had any abstract realism because I'm not sure me, either one of us know what that is. Yeah, that would be a new genre. Maybe you guys can like start that. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It's being discussed on the internet more and more as if it's a genre that is mm -hmm. uh, recognized. But when we do the survey, one of the things that's interesting is we'll get responses and the responses will say things like, uh, Oh, the Bennett Prize only wants photorealism, or the Bennett Prize only wants abstract nice. realism, or the nice. Bennett Prize is only about nudes and uh, uh, this sort of thing. And what we urge people to do, look at the work that's been recognized for among the finalists, because all of the finalists are listed on the website, the BennettPrize.org website, lists every finalist for each iteration of the prize yeah. and gives an example of their work. And if you look at that work, uh, what it would say is you can go from very hard realism to magic realism to impressionistic realism, and you can still be right. It's a pretty broad. And frankly, if you look at the work that's been uh, traveling the country, the show was traveling around. What you find is that it's it's a very mixed bag. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that too because I've looked at the the pieces in your collection, beautiful pieces, um, but very very varied. So they, there's there's like something of everything, and I think that that's great because I agree with you, artists. It's not like you know, an equation where there's only one right answer. Like the beauty of art is that we all have our own different viewpoints about how we experience life. And, and we want to see that beautiful kaleidoscope, right? For sure. You know, another thing that comes up a lot, uh, and it becomes a subject for every jury. And that is, is, uh, is figuration su sufficient or must there also be narrative? Hmm, that's a good question. It is a great question. And the answer is we've picked, we've picked both. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we've, we've picked both. I think uh, if I were counseling uh, contestants, um, academic uh, painting, wherein you are uh, technically correct and you're doing a, a pure visual depiction of a figure, and there's a whole series of these artists 
online who do that. Uh, probably uh, that's great, but if you can introduce an element of narrative, uh, what the Artsy survey says is that people buy art with narrative more readily than they buy purely purely visual art, right? Yeah. Purely visual impact. So we encourage people, if you have a narrative story to tell, by all means, include it in the work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. Awesome. I, I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, and it doesn't, it doesn't need to be like an illustration or something like that. It can just be a, the suggestion of something else going on, you know? Well, yeah. you, you know, there's even the, uh, I wish I could show the painting. Uh, we've got a little, a little watercolor here in which, uh, uh, in which a, 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 bell, a bellman is in a hotel is bringing a letter to a very, very stylish woman mm -hmm. and handing it to her. And the name of the painting is called The Letter. And there's, it's beautiful depiction of figuration, especially the, this, this very, very stylized woman. Uh, but the letter is just enough to create a narrative uh, emphasis mm -hmm. that gets the viewer to say, wonder who's sending a letter to this woman, yeah. this very stylish woman, what, who's sending this letter to this woman mm -hmm. and having it delivered by a bellman mm -hmm. in a hotel? And is it her lover? Is, is, is it a telegram? Uh, you know, is it a message? What does it say? And yeah. uh, the intrigue, oh, who can it be? <laughs> well, and, and frankly, people, people love art that triggers that kind of- intrigue. Oh, definitely, yeah. An internal conversation that you have with yourself, what, what's happened here? That's, yeah. that's when, really when I've had collectors ask me like what's going on in paintings, like sometimes I'll tell them like what I was thinking, but I've learned to just be like, what do you think is happening? And oftentimes they come up with the, the most interesting answers that I would have never thought of. And I'm like, hmm, that, that may be what's happening. You know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's interesting. We've done that. <laughs> we've asked artists to tell us what they think and they'll all there's a subset of them that'll always say well what do you think <laughs> yeah I'm thinking, I'm thinking of one in particular and uh what do you think I said blah 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 and she says uh sure why not <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, that's sure. so funny um yeah, so great. Well, um I want to uh go towards some of our last questions here and I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, building your legacy because I know we talked about this before the cameras were rolling, but um, so a lot of artists want to build their uh, collection of their own work and they want to see the work that goes into collectors' homes, um, into museums, wherever it ends up. They want to see that it's taken care of and that they're, they're building a legacy like in the world, they're making an impact. Um, and they're not going to just end up places where, you know, 
if, if the collector passes away, then the children just donate it to like the Salvation Army. So that's like, we, do, we don't want that to happen. So how can artists ensure that they are building a legacy and that they are collected by people who value them, even if it's not like, even if their art's not selling for like hundreds of thousands of dollars, how can they still uh, build a legacy so that their artwork is valued and um, is seen in elevated spaces. Um, do you have any kind of advice for artists out there who would like to do that? Dr. Schmidt, I, uh, I think so. Uh, the, you know, some of it's blocking and tackling. So the first thing that I think we both say uh, when artists ask questions like this is, you should keep a log, Excel spreadsheet uh, would be a great way to do it, but you could do it in a notebook. Keep a log that contains high-res photographs of every work you make. Mm -hmm. Track how much you sold it for and track who you sold it to. And if it was sold through a gallery, the galleries don't like to tell the artist who's buying the work because they're fearful that the artist will end run the gallery and go directly to the collector to sell the work. Well, don't do that. You, you don't want to make your gallery mad. But I think keeping track of who's collecting your work is really important. Know where the paintings live. And I'll tell you why you want to do that. When you start to get some traction and somebody says, we want to have a show of your work, and we want some of the best paintings, all of which have been sold, you're able to go to your list and see where, where do you go to find those paintings mm -hmm. so that you can put them in the show, for example. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, that's the first thing. Keep track of the prices. Try to raise your prices as you go. We tend to be um, fans of artists having galleries, you know, uh, galleries do help <laughs> artists in the sense that they get their work, they concentrate demand, they get the work in front of collectors who are interested in it. Mm -hmm. And they generally tend to push your prices up because a rising price for an artist is good for the gallery too. So, mm -hmm. uh, make a commitment you're not going to end run the gallery and go directly to the directly to the collector mm -hmm. we won't end run a gallery if if an artist is represented at a gallery mm -hmm. um and so uh in terms of of that you know we occasionally get people who want to give us paintings so that they can say they're in the collection mm. um, we have never accepted a gift uh, of a painting uh, one, because it would disadvantage the artist, and two, because it would then make us susceptible to anybody who wanted to give us a gift then saying they're in the collection. And mm -hmm. The whole point of the collection is that we have curated it, right? right. We, we've made a decision to let the work in. Right. Uh, so you can't really give your way into uh, uh, major collections. But I think you can take subtle steps to get the work in front of collectors. And once you know someone's collecting your work, the 
letdown that comes from being rejected causes people not to continue to show their work to somebody who says no. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a mistake. If somebody has bought your work once, keep showing them the stuff you're creating, whether through your gallery or however you're doing, how, even if you're selling it yourself, keep sending those messages because your most likely second sale is to somebody who bought it the first time. Absolutely, yeah. I, I um, talked to a couple of museum curators and not the, the top notch, not MoMA, not that level, but the mid-level museums that are good, solid community museums. Um, he, they, the curators said they rarely get perspective from artists for shows. Hmm. And that what they recommended was to develop a professional quality, you know, high-res photos. People slap together stuff, you know, they'll send five emails. They don't want that. They want a professionally produced, either by the artist or somebody else, prospectus of their show, you know, the number of square feet, blah, 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 their theme. And then any, if it's a community museum, any kinds of events that, you know, like, I might, you might partner with a storyteller about myth, right? And have mm -hmm. the storyteller come in. And so any kind of things like that, that can involve broader, ancillary. yeah, the, mm -hmm. like ancillary events, but also get different people in maybe, I mean, you know. Multidisciplinary. And, and what can, what can you do to bring children in, you know, like those activity things? And, and they said. Oh, I that, love it. Oh my goodness. This is such a good idea. Wow. Well, that's what I was told, but it has to, it, it can't, I guess it can't emphasize this. It, it can't be slopped together because they don't look at that, right? Mm -hmm. they, they want something Slip. that's worth their time to look at. And that has a clear message and that is, um, has an integrity to the show. It can't just be 15 works by Elaine Schmidt. There has to be some unifying force right. that, makes internal sense right and and then I imagine that it should you should also target um like museums or collections that already have something in common with your work yes yeah better yeah yes mm -hmm. and that you know well we visit a lot of museums and they have different personalities yeah just Definitely. like different galleries have different personalities. Mm -hmm. You've got to figure out the one you might be in relationship with or mm -hmm. two or three or four and try to develop some kind of interaction with them. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think uh, the prospectus idea, um, if you're a local artist and you have a local museum and you put together a prospectus and for those that don't know what a prospectus looks like, you know, it usually has an opening paragraph. The opening paragraph says, uh, Jessica is a painter that specializes in this type of magic realistic work and here is her bio. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a proposal for a show of 20 works, the theme of which is X and with in her work, Jessica explores 
this aspect of femininity or ma magic or spirituality. Mm -hmm. And then there would be thumbnails of the work with uh, titles and dimensions and medium, the media, and uh, you would describe, you know, what you think is gonna it's gonna take to show this show, right? Mm -hmm. So that a, a a curator sitting at the desk can say, well, you know, I've got a slot for that little gallery in the back that's empty next fall mm -hmm. in the community museum right and then they read this prospectus and they say i get to i get to focus on a woman i get to focus on a local artist i get to focus mm -hmm. on somebody whose work overlaps with our permanent collection any of those will work as mm -hmm. a hook and wow that's amazing absolutely amazing and you know what I think stops a lot of ours? They don't feel that it's possible. <laughs> they just feel like, oh, I, I, I don't even feel like maybe someday I'll get to that level, but they don't actually go for it now because they don't feel like when they when they when you go to a museum, it can be intimidating, like as an artist. Well, um, yeah. Well, one of the other things I think that slows people down is if you're an artist and you're running as fast as you can to make a living. And you haven't really kept track of where your best paintings have gone. Mm -hmm. The notion of put, putting together a show of your best work is really problematic because you don't know where the paintings are. Right. So this goes back to the earlier point of, of track, track your work, uh, track who's buying it, track, keep track of all these things because there will come a day when you're going to want to put your 20 or 30 or 40 best paintings in a room and have a retrospective mm -hmm. and if you don't know where to go to get them you've got a problem yeah and the other thing i would suggest is back to having a community of people who will tell you the truth mm -hmm. we've seen this with the prize sometimes artists will enter we we follow a lot of social media so i mean like we, we see a lot of art and we will know that that artist has 10 better paintings that we've seen over the last four years. And they send in these, these samples and they, they don't get chosen because the samples are not their best work. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think with a museum prospectus or what you're entering for a competition, have somebody that will tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Look at it. With yeah. You and give you feedback mm -hmm. um, you know having yeah. a, se a separate voice mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a trusted friend or group of friends who can tell yeah. you no no that's it may be the one that's on your mind most today but mm -hmm. the ones that are your best are these right that right. helps because we've been amazed by painters whom we knew uh whom whom we knew well who submitted for the prize and then uh didn't use their best work to do it and we've mm -hmm. always puzzled over uh what goes through a person's mind i think the desire is to show the most recent the most current work yeah because that's mm -hmm. what's on your mind but it may not always be your best yeah um somebody might and I, I would add to say that it doesn't have to be an artist. Um, 
some people like business people that I know have had like some of the best insights that are totally outside the box because they're not even in the industry. Like I can think of, um, my dad has suggestions sometimes for my paintings that I'm like, oh, wow, you know, that would really work there, you know? And, um, and like, I, I, I'm just amazed. Like he has no artistic sensibility at all, but he does, you know, when he's like giving me suggestions for paintings, if I ask for them, you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, it doesn't have to be an, another artist. Sometimes good perspectives can come outside of the art world. Sure. Absolutely. They can. Uh -huh. So um, use your friends. Yeah. Use your friends. Definitely. All right. And then my last question is, are there any tips for how artists can ensure their work makes the impact in the world that they hope for? Any, any kind of like uh, parting advice for all the artists out there? You go first. Oh. I have time to think about it. <laughs> Never pass up an opportunity to get your work shown. Mm. Uh, I, you know, a lot of artists create a lot of work and they put it against the wall and, you know, find a gallery that's willing to show it and then put it on the wall. And then when it comes off the wall, continue to get it, show it on social media after it's been shown at the gallery. And yeah, can, definitely. Can continue to get your work in front of people that it matters to. And, you know, I, I, I can't say enough about the fact that how many studios have we visited where there'll be canvases leaning one against the other, five deep on every, uh, uh, on the floor, all the way around the room. Mm, wow. And you say, you know, spend 75% of your time painting. Mm -hmm. And the other 25% of the time, promoting, tracking, administrating, Excel spreadsheeting, mm -hmm. doing that stuff, because make sure your work has high-res photos. Another thing we occasionally get solicited, even somebody will send us a picture of a painting, but, you know, the the angles are not square and somebody's got the painting leaning and the lighting's not very good and mm -hmm. it, it could be picasso but if it's if it's a poorly uh, photographed it mm -hmm. really does a disservice to your promotional opportunity mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. if you can't do it yourself hire somebody to make professional photos of your work right mm -hmm. Get yeah, a tripod and a nice camera and mm -hmm. lights and put it up so that you can get a square high res image because mm -hmm. a lot of business is being done that way. Absolutely. Thank you. That's great. And I think my advice would be to have a learning self. And what I mean by that is a lot of people, not just artists, say I have to be true to myself. And if you think about it, we all want to be smarter, have better skill level, uh, deeper perceptions as we go through life. Thinner. 
I said, you can't be too thin or too rich. And I'll say, you can be too thin, but that's a whole other conversation. But be a learning self and a listening self. Yeah, be true to who you are, but who you are, I think, should evolve as you go through life. Mm-hmm. And then I love that. your practice should evolve too. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's there's another thing about the muse, and this is uh, spins off of that. And you and I have had this conversation where you watch somebody who has a successful practice, and then they morph into uh, as time goes on, they back away from the thing that was very successful for them, and they start pursuing something else. Mm-hmm. And we've watched a couple of artists who had very promising careers. And we've, we've said, I, we've had this conversation where we've said, well, wait, you know, uh, this kind of thing that you're doing now is way off the path of what made you successful. And mm-hmm. it may not be the thing to keep, if you want to keep selling paintings now, mm-hmm. yeah, and you'll get people who say, well, my muse tells me to go here. Mm-hmm. Uh, just keep in mind that your muse uh might not be suitable for your collection collector base that's why you have to listen right that's part that's what that that's why i'm saying this learning self has to understand that once you get successful it's only at the highest pinnacles of success that you can start to deviate from what was successful before. You know, Picasso could become a ceramist. He could make ceramics because everybody would buy whatever he created. He could make prints. He could go off the path of of painting, uh, pure oil paint on canvas. He could do it, but only after he got successful. And Mm -hmm. there's two points in your career when you can get off the path. The first is when you haven't got a following, you can do whatever you want because nobody's paying any attention. Yeah. And when you're wildly successful up here, you can you can likewise go off the path because it won't matter to the people who love your work, they'll buy it anyway. Right. In the middle, you need to start thinking about what your brand looks like and Consistency. What your signature. Be consistent with your brand and the signature nature of your work. Mm-hmm. Love it. That's great. Both of your perspectives are so different and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> We're very different people. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you guys so much for this interview. Um, I think that everyone's going to love it. I loved it. I learned so much. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And um, yeah, if I'm ever um, in Texas, I'll, I'll let you guys know. But uh, uh, I can't wait to, I'm, I'm going to apply for the prize this year. Um, I'm sure a ton of people listening to this are going to apply to the prize. And so we'll definitely, Wish yeah, you. thank you. Thank Go you. Yeah, and we'll definitely support you in that way. And um, yeah, anything else that you wanted to say to the artists? Oh, you can, you can find you guys at the Bennett, BennettPrize.org, right? Yes. BennettPrize.org. And if you'd like to see the collection, it's the BennettCollection.com. Okay, perfect. You got a parting, a parting shot? Apply. 
<laughs> we, yeah, we reduced the uh, entrance fee. I think it's well from the first year. It's forty dollars, so it's not horribly expensive. So give it a shot. Keep keep painting. That's my yeah. advice. Keep going. Don't be discouraged. Mm -hmm. Keep going. Amazing. Thank you so much, um, Stephen and Lee. Absolutely. You. Have a great rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Inspired Painter podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would so appreciate you leaving a five-star review with your experience. This helps other people discover the podcast who might be encouraged by it as well. And if you are interested in booking a coaching call with me to create a plan for your art career and overcome limits that may be holding you back, please visit the link in the show notes or send me a DM on Instagram at Jessica Libor Studio. I can't wait to hear from you. Until next time, stay inspired.